Welcome to Cowboys on the Commons, a podcast about cooperative law, economics, politics, and culture, produced by Solidarity House. In this episode, we're talking to Cheryl Ring, an attorney and activist and friend, about the recent decision by the United States Supreme Court in Hernandez v. Mesa. The decision let a Border Patrol agent get away with shooting an unarmed Mexican child from across the border, but its implications are even more frightening than that and underscore the reason why we have to fight fascism on all fronts. Before we talk to Cheryl, I want to talk to you about this show and Solidarity House Cooperative. We bring people a ton of content for free on material politics, the struggle against capitalism, racism, sexism, ableism, and more, the search for cooperative alternatives, and the importance of building a universal and diverse movement for a better world. We do this from our communal space here in Laramie, Wyoming, which also houses activists and artists, both settled and in transition, hosts public, political, and educational events, and is a socialist homestead in the belly of the beast of fossil fuel capitalism. In order to keep producing this content, we need your support. Please become a subscriber at patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. That's patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. Every penny of support we get goes right back into expanding our production, our projects, and the living and working space we provide to all who need it in the journey to a just and peaceful world. That's patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. And now, here's our interview with Cheryl Ring about the Hernandez v. Mesa decision. According to Ian Milheiser at Vox, The case turned upon whether the Supreme Court's decision in Bivens v. Six Unknown Named Agents, a 1971 case, which permitted federal lawsuits against law enforcement officers who violate the Constitution, has any real force in 2020. After Justice Samuel Alito's opinion in Hernandez, the answer to this question is a resounding no. Alito's opinion does not explicitly overrule Bivens, but it appears to be laying the groundwork for a future opinion that will eliminate Bivens' protections against federal officers who violate the Constitution. Notably, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a separate opinion in which he argues that the time has come to consider discarding the Bivens' doctrine altogether. Particularly concerning is the impact of the decision on executive power, already something that seems to be uh, being stretched to fascistic proportions in the Trump administration. According to Milheiser at Vox, setting aside the fact that there are court cases stretching back at least 200 years, holding that government actors may be sued when they violate the law, Alito's view of the separation of powers is debatable. The Supreme Court, after all, established very early in American history that it is emphatically the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is, and no one can reasonably question that the Fourth Amendment places limits on what law enforcement officers can do with their weapons. The question in cases like Bivens is whether the Fourth Amendment means anything, especially in cases where the government refuses to discipline an officer who steps out of line. 
or whether the right to be free from unlawful searches and seizures necessarily implies that there must be some way to enforce that right. Milheiser says, the Supreme Court's decision in Hernandez transforms the Bill of Rights into a paper tiger, in many cases involving law enforcement overreach, and it foreshadows a future where Bivens is overruled in its entirety. No, it's, it's, uh, thank you, uh, Cheryl. It's so great to have you. Uh, you are an attorney, you're an activist, you're also a baseball podcaster. Uh, and so it's kind of cool to, uh, to have you wearing so many hats and, uh, you work with my good friend, Sarah Sanchez. Uh, and, uh, it's, uh, it's great to, to finally have you on the show. Thank you so much. As you, you know, and as your listeners know, the, the, background of Hernandez v. Mesa was where a border patrol agent, uh, an an officer of Customs and Border Patrol, who's considered federal law enforcement, shot an unarmed teenager across the U.S.-Mexico border. There was evidently a dry culvert between them. It's undisputed that the victim was running away at the time. There was some dispute over whether or not the victim had previously thrown a rock at the border patrol agent. Um, But regardless, the Border Patrol agent uh, shot and killed this teenager um, who was unarmed at the time. And it created, understandably, an international diplomatic incident. And Mexico decided to forego more formal responses to the murder of one of their citizens by a United States federal agent. because of this pending lawsuit. There was the idea that the American court system was going to provide redress for their family. Um, And what happened was something extremely not that. Um, But what was so disturbing about Hernandez v. Mesa is the lengths to which the Supreme Court went in this case, not just to deny both Mexico and the victim's family any kind of redress, but also to make sure that no one in the future would be able to obtain any kind of redress if this sort of thing happened again. And the decision seemed carefully calculated so as to give Customs and Border Patrol and uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement far more blanket or plenary power than they've had in the past. And there's a couple of ways that the Supreme Court went about this, some more subtle than others. Um, The first thing that jumped out at me about the majority opinion is that unlike most most appellate and trial court dispositions that are coming from a motion to dismiss, and a motion to dismiss is a special kind of brief that is filed by a defendant to ask the court to throw out the case without a trial, And it's a standard procedural rule that on a motion to dismiss, all the allegations in a complaint are assumed to be true. And that's because the question is, even if everything in the complaint is true, does this state a cause of action? Is there enough here for you to sue? And because the idea of deciding factual disparities is for a trial. That's why we have trials in the United States, is to decide these factual disputes. Sure, so you Um, wouldn't be relitigating all of those factual things on appeal. Exactly. Now here, the Supreme Court decided to make findings of facts on a motion to dismiss where there is no trial in the record. In other words, so Justice Alito, who's writing the majority opinion, even though this is an appeal from a motion to dismiss, not an appeal from a trial, 
decides to go through both different factual scenarios and side with Customs and Border Patrol, which is exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing on a motion to dismiss. And of course, thanks to stare decisis and, and the precedential nature of uh, our court system, what the Supreme Court is very subtly telling courts is, well, when this comes up, you can do this too. Because remember, the Supreme Court is supposed to, by its own precedent, take everything in the complaint as true. And in the complaint, it's stated that the victim was unarmed, running away from the person who shot him, was on Mexican territory, had never attacked the Border Patrol agent who shot him. And the Supreme Court decided to disregard those facts, even though their own precedent said, you take uh, on what's called a Rule 12b6 motion to dismiss, you take all facts in the complaint as true. I think this is really important and to our, you know, sort of non-legal listeners, uh, you can't really understate the importance of what you're talking about. It, it, it's almost as if, uh, you know, not only the, the precedent is not only going to include uh, the rationale for the decision, uh, but also the dicta, the the rationale of exactly. uh, of the of the facts in the case and the exp and the additional analysis in the case, and so this sort of adds that element then to say, you know, you can take a side even though uh, the facts as presented have already been uh, adjudicated in terms of being on one side. Uh, that was the first thing that jumped out to me on the very first page of this decision. What Justice Alito is saying is. Yes, technically, if because there's been no trial, we are supposed to assume the plaintiff's version of events is true, but we're not going to do that. And so when you have the Supreme Court saying, we are not going to take the facts in the complaint as true because of who the defendant is, what the Supreme Court is essentially saying is that Customs and Border Patrol, and by extension, the federal government, gets to operate in the court system by a different set of rules as everybody else. And so think about what that means. What that basically means is the Supreme Court is saying, if the federal government gets sued, then we can defer to the federal government's version of events. And that's exactly what Alito does. We can defer to the federal government's version of events, even when our own rules say that we can't do that. So we, we get past the, the fact that the Supreme Court is basically disregarding its own precedent, disregarding its own rules, the rules of civil procedure when it comes to what facts are accepted as true. And then we get to a very lengthy and completely irrelevant discussion of separation of powers. And essentially what the Supreme Court is saying is that if the court were to allow for Customs and Border Patrol agents or ICE agents to be sued and by extension the federal government to be sued for their actions, it would violate separation of powers. Now this is, to, to kind of take a step back and explain what separation of powers is. It's a legal doctrine that says that the judiciary, the legislative, and the executive branches, the three branches of government, cannot interfere in each other's internal workings. And that, to a certain degree, makes sense. That's why the president can't decide to dissolve Congress. It's why the judiciary can't issue an order saying that the president has, it has to be removed. There's limits to what each branch of government can do. But saying that the judiciary has no right to extend liability as to the actions of the federal government, that is an unprecedented extension of what separation of powers is supposed to be. It is essentially saying that the judiciary has no authority where 
the federal government is acting in terms of national security. And the frightening thing is, and the, the dissent, I think, did a great job of going over this. The frightening thing is just how different this is than the, than the, the Supreme Court jurisprudence of even 20 years ago. When you had those cases that came out of Gitmo, where the Supreme Court consistently said, yes, there are still due process rights that attach to people who are, quote unquote, enemy combatants. Yes, there are still due process rights that attach to American citizens being held in Guantanamo Bay. You still have to give them some kind of due process. This is essentially going the other way. Now we're saying, actually, no, because the judiciary has no right to interfere with the determinations of the federal government as to national security. So the federal government can do ostensibly whatever it wants. And that's the second thing that jumps out, because the judiciary, the, the Supreme Court, which is acting on behalf of the judiciary, is essentially handing a blank check to the, to, to the executive branch and saying, do what you, do what you want. Now, here's why this is broader than just what applies to Bivens claims. And so to explain Bivens, um, Bivens is a Supreme Court case um, that essentially is a federal court analog for what's called a Section 1983 claim. Section 1983 is a statute that allows for a person who is injured by a state court actor, like a state police officer or a sheriff who is acting, quote unquote, under color of state law, and exceeds their authority in a racist way or a misogynistic way or some way that causes harm. And that's an oversimplification, but it'll do for our purposes. So if, for example, you were pulled over for speeding or you were pulled over for driving while black and a police officer pulled their gun and it was not necessary to do so just because the police officer is racist, it's a 1983 claim that you would bring to vindicate your rights. And Bivens was the Supreme Court case that said, yes, there's, we can do that for federal court too. We can do that for federal officers also. Um, now, here's the problem. The separation of powers is discussion that the Supreme Court is talking about here, as much as they say they're deciding whether or not to extend Bivens to what they call cross-border shootings, and I'll get to that in a minute, their separation of powers discussion doesn't limit itself to cross-border shootings. Their separation of powers discussion is essentially about can these, the Supreme Court interfere in national security and then it decides, no, we can't. So it uses that conclusion to explain why they aren't extending Bivens, but the conclusion, no, the Supreme Court has no authority in anything relating to national security, that's horrifying because it goes directly against the, the all of the cases from the 2000s, from the war on terror, where you had this jurisprudence, and even that was too weak, but at least there was jurisprudence that said, due process rights still matter. Right. I was going to say, even, even in those instances where a, 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 a petitioner didn't really get the justice that they deserved, in my opinion, uh, the, the Supreme Court was still affirming that, the, that those limits existed. Uh, and it was, it, so uh, whether, you know, whether going slow or fast, uh, uh, there was definitely a, abuses of executive power that the Supreme Court was not adequately addressing. But this case is different, isn't it? This case is different because unlike in the, in the Rumsfeld case from the mid-2000s, Boumediene versus Bush, those cases where the Supreme Court said, yeah, you don't have all the rights, but you have some. 
this opinion comes right out and says, no, you don't have Fourth Amendment rights unless you're an American citizen. And just sort of drops that in dicta and moves on with, and that's, a, a, that's absolutely startling because even though it doesn't come out and say it, that is essentially overruling a hundred years of case law that says, actually, you do have Fourth Amendment rights if you are a non-citizen. And the Supreme Court just sort of accepts that as a truism and moves on. And, and, and does this, uh, as a, uh, in this instance, Alito does this, in you say, without really providing a, a warrant for it. Exactly. And, and so we, he accepts, well, and so he goes through his separation of powers ar- ar- argument, which is incredibly deferential, dangerously so to the executive. Then he says, basically, non-citizens don't have Fourth Amendment rights anyway. Then he says, based on that, we're not going to extend Bivens to cross-border shootings. And then in dicta, he says, and by the way, Bivens was probably wrongly decided anyway. And Which was also the gist of uh, Clarence of Thomas Thomas's concurrence. Uh, uh, concurrence. Yes. And the important thing about Thomas's concurrence is that he was not the only one to sign on to that. Um, and so you had multiple justices basically saying, yes, Bivens was wrongly decided. And the majority opinion saying, yeah, we should probably revisit Bivens because, you know, we, we were wrong to decide it that way. And the only words that the majority opinion doesn't include is basically Bivens is overruled. But the Alito all but comes out and says, yeah, the reasoning behind Bivens was wrong. And the reason that is so horrifying is because the precedent that Alito is writing here is basically says two things. Number one, these, the courts have no authority to intervene where national security is involved. And number two, the cause of action that was created to cabin federal officers within due process rights probably should not have been decided that way, and we're going to be overruling it soon. So what this amounts to is a massive grant of power to federal law enforcement by the Supreme Court, saying that essentially massive swaths of the federal government, specifically under the Department of Homeland Security, everything they do is non-justiciable. Everything they do is non-reviewable by the courts. And that is absolutely horrifying when you think about it, because that's the, that is the necessary implication of this ruling. And, and to, I guess, to whom is that cast? Uh, do you mean federal agents in general? Uh, or is it confined to immigration issues, or it could, it could go further than that? I, so, so that's going to be an interesting thing to see how the courts of appeals interpret this. I can absolutely see the most Trumpified circuit, the Fifth Circuit, coming out and saying, yes, there are now no limits on what a federal agent can do with respect to excessive force or due process violations. All of that's fine because of, uh, because of Hernandez v. Mason. The more reasonable circuits, for as long as they stay that way, the ninth, the seventh, the second, will probably say that it's limited to ICE and Customs and Border Patrol. But even there, that's a huge number of law enforcement personnel who are carrying weapons who have basically just been told, you can't be sued. It, is a, it, it amounts to the largest expansion of sovereign immunity in the United States in close to 100 years. And that's not hyperbole, because if you think about how sovereign immunity in the United States generally has been working, it's been getting more and more restricted over time. 
The United States has gone so far as to start passing laws to restrict its own sovereign immunity um, and to allow for more lawsuits over time. Um, and so what we're talking about now is this is the, the first time with the except with a possible exception of the progeny of the lone wolf case, which is a, a separate issue. This is the first time in close to 100 years where the Supreme Court has actually gone actively the other way and done a massive expansion of immunity for federal law enforcement officers. And the fact that they've done it in this context is incredibly worrisome given what is going on right now. So the, the one thing I do want to add is I've seen some lawyers who are saying it's limited to its facts, it's limited to cross-border shootings, so we're not going to panic. The, the reason why this worries me so much is twofold. Number one, that separation of powers argument is not limited to cross-border shootings. And that is a huge deal that we cannot, that we, we cannot overstate the importance of that. The fact that Supreme Court basically came out and said, separation of powers is the thing that decides whether or not a federal agent can be sued, that that's, new and not okay. Um, and the second thing that's worth pointing out is that the, the, the fact that Thomas's concurrence was, was written the way it was strongly suggests that the Supreme Court is going to be taking a case in the near future with the goal of overruling Bivens entirely. And when that happens, now you're talking about questions over whether or not there are any limits on excessive force from the FBI, the CIA, any kind of, of the, the ATF, any kind of internal, um, any kind of internal uh, law enforcement agency or any kind of, of federal agency under the Department of Homeland Security that serves any kind of law enforcement function inside the United States. And that is incredibly dangerous. If the Supreme Court were to overrule Bivens, there would be a question as to whether or not that you could seek any damages against any federal officer for anything they did to you. And that would be a, a truly remarkable expansion of federal power, even beyond what we've already seen. I think this uh, underlies two imperatives, political imperatives, and one, and, and they're complementary, even though not everyone, I think, sees them as complementary. You know, one is real grassroots efforts uh, to uh, mobilize people um, in uh, resistance and in protest uh, against uh, abuse of executive authority. Uh, and that means, you know, direct action, that means civil disobedience, that means organizing, having meetings, doing education, uh, supporting uh, ACLU and other organizations that uh, have been on the front lines uh, of fighting uh, against executive power. Uh, the other thing, though, I think is it's really important for us to take control of our of our legislatures and in particular, you know, of our U.S. Uh, uh, legislative branch and being able to uh, flip the Senate uh, as well as, you know, having, uh, and, you know, and having a uh, uh, someone uh, other than a fascist in the White House uh, is going to help that process as well. Uh, but we've got to change. We, we, the, the only remedy that uh, structurally seems to be a change in our laws. So, I would tack on one thing to that, because I do feel like we on the left make a fatal mistake over and over and over again. We talk about the need for direct, act, direct action against the executive. We talk about the need for, leg, for legislative primaries where necessary, for running better legislative candidates through things like Justice Democrats. We pay so little attention to the courts. 
Right now, one in every four appellate court judges and one in every six, no, what, I have that backwards, one in every four trial court judges and one in every six appellate court judges in the United States was appointed by Trump. And if you think, and if you add to them the number of judges who were Bush appointees, you're talking about easily two-thirds of the federal judiciary that is currently a Republican appointee. We talk about the need to elect a progressive president, but it doesn't matter if Bernie Sanders was elected tomorrow with a supermajority, this judiciary will strike down anything he does as unconstitutional. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do about the, the courts? Because in the past, just since the calendar flipped to 2020, we've had decisions come out of the Fifth Circuit that say that it is not a violation of the Eighth Amendment for a Black inmate to be forced to lie in his own excrement for up to a week, as long as the excrement is removed, as long as he has the opportunity to shower himself once a week. We've had a decision from the Fifth Circuit that says that what they call gender dysphoric individuals do not have standing to appear in front of the court in any capacity. We've had decisions out of the, we've had a decision from the Fifth Circuit that says that there is nothing wrong with put with indefinite solitary confinement for minors. And more and more we're seeing this kind of case law becoming the law of the land. And what, I, what I'm begging of activists is to recognize the big battle right now isn't for the presidency. It isn't for the legislature. Yes, they matter, but it is very much for the, ju the justice system. You, we, we have in New York an ostensibly progressive state where there was just a new cash bail reform law passed. And in order to prevent prosecutors from quitting en masse, a trial court judge, Sue Esponte, declared the whole thing unconstitutional because of how incestuous the relationship is in this country between judges and government attorneys. So what we have right now, and Sandra Day O'Connor used to do some amazing work on this, talking about the need to eliminate uh, judicial elections and prosecutorial elections because judges and prosecutors shouldn't be popularly elected and they're, they're bought and paid for. Um, but this is something where we absolutely need to start talking about how do we take back the judiciary? How do we get prosecutors in place who are actually going to act in a progressive manner? How are we going to fix a judiciary that has essentially decided that half the country isn't worthy of civil rights? Because that's what we're seeing out of the Supreme Court right now. And for every bad decision that comes out of the Supreme Court, like Hernandez v. Mesa, there are a dozen that I'm seeing every week coming out of the courts of appeals that are even worse. And remember, Fifth Circuit, for example, that covers three states. And now in three states, it's legal to force a black man to lie in his own shit for a week as long as he gets to shower at the end of the week because that's considered reasonable punishment. So we, we, we need to pay attention to what is happening because the, the elections will only take us so far and the judiciary is where the fight is really going to be in the next 50 years. Uh, our work is definitely cut out for us. Uh, so Cheryl Ring, I want to thank you because even though this is really, really serious and scary stuff that we're talking about, uh, it's great to have allies on uh, who can talk about it uh, with uh, as much uh, knowledge uh, and, um, and commitment uh, to the facts as you can. So I hope we can do this again real soon. Thank you so much for having me and I'd love to come back whenever.
Your support on patreon.com slash solidarityhouse ensures that we can deliver this content to the public for free. 